Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.06 a.m. Central Standard Time. It's the 16th of December 2020, and this is episode 341 of Bitcoin and Dead Coins. Dead Coins. You heard that right. I got a tweet here. I have zero two three. I don't know some numbers on Twitter. Was responding to one of my news tweets this morning as I was setting up for the show, and uh, we'll we'll get into the story that he retweeted here in a sec. Um, but apparently, this guy or either put together himself or knows of somebody who put together a an interesting website called DeadCoins.com. If you don't know about it, it's deadcoins.com. And there's, you know, a couple of tabs. Uh, There's, you know, full list of all coins. And then there's like a tab for deceased. (laughs) And there's a lot of what is considered deceased coins. Like Wikibits, Vegas Coin, Playgrounds with a Z, Zilla, Rialto, Storium, OptiToken, DagCoin, OX Bitcoin, Band Protocol, Decision Token, LightPay Coin, that's my favorite, OX Bitcoin again, this is a different one. The original Monero is listed, Solace Coin, Beyond the Scene Coin, Unobtainium, if you remember that one, Raven Dark, Corona Coin, I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on. In fact, if I scroll down here to the bottom, <clears throat> The list says that it's displaying one of 50 out of 1,070 listed as dead coins. That's, that, that, that's a, a lot of people losing their money on, on uh, shit coins. Again, I don't have to worry about it because I don't join in with any of this stuff and neither should you. But now let's get into the news. And the first one up today is, uh, well, Trump is considering clemency for Silk Road's Ross Ulbricht as a report states. Jeff Benson is writing this one yesterday for Decrypt.co. Let's read it because this one makes me happy. According to a report, okay, so just, you know, keep that in mind. This is a report. We don't know. The orange man hasn't tweeted anything, but people, you know, this is all going to be people familiar with the situation. According to reporting today from the Daily Beast, President Trump is considering granting clemency to Silk Road founder Ross Ulbricht. Ulbricht created the Darknet website Silk Road, which used Bitcoin to facilitate peer-to-peer sales of drugs and illicit materials. I'm going to stop right there and pause. That was part of Silk Road. That wasn't everything that was on Silk Road. You could get regular legal stuff on Silk Road, okay? Drugs and illicit materials were part of it. When Ross set this up, he set it up so that people could sell whatever the hell it is that they wanted and take Bitcoin for it, okay? 
just keep that shit in mind. If you're one of the people that's out there that thinks that Ross got what he deserved, stop listening to the show and block me on Twitter and everywhere on, on every social media because you're full of shit. You don't know what you're talking about. You're full of shit. You're full of shit, period, forever. Okay, Ross did not deserve two life sentences plus 40 years. This is bullshit, all right? If somebody wants to buy drugs, that's, that's on them. Facilitating a platform to do so is like, can I sue the city of Chicago for building the street corner and maintaining the street corner that drugs were sold upon? No, no, you can't. And this is exactly what he did. He built a street corner. He didn't sell the drugs. He built the street corner. People decided that they wanted to sell drugs and other people decided that they wanted to buy drugs in what's known as a free market. So like I said, if you're somebody who believes that Ross got what he deserves, I hate you. All right. I, I can't, I can't say it any better than that. Continuing on. <clears throat> he was sentenced to life in prison without parole in 2015 on a mixture of money laundering, fraud, and drug charges. Uh, no, li- he got a double life sentence. Okay, life times two plus 40 years. That's the actual sentence. So let's be clear about that. Nobody's gotten that for laundering money, fraud, and drug charges. And I guarantee you people have been sent down the river for exactly those charges, and none of them got life plus two or life times two plus 40 years. According to the Daily Beast sources, White House lawyers are reviewing documents related to Ulbricht's case, writes the Daily Beast. Quote, two of these sources say the president has at times privately expressed some sympathy for Ulbricht's situation and has been considering his name, among others, for his next round of commutations and pardons before the January 20th inauguration of his 2020 Democratic opponent, end quote. The Free Ross organization was not immediately available for comment. This article will be updated. Okay, so they they don't have a whole lot more than what we found out yesterday uh, via Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is that you're on. I will say this. If you have any time today at all in your life that you can spare for this young man, then get on what, like either one or all social media platforms that you use and get real Donald or at real Donald Trump, Donald Trump and uh, pardons and Ross Ulbricht trending today. And also let's not forget Snowden, uh, Julian Assange and uh, oh, what's, what's her name? Oh, it's the, the, the chick that gave all the materials to uh, Snowden. Uh, <clears throat> I can't remember her name uh, right now, but she's gone. She's been in, she's in jail again after being released, basically because she told the court, screw you, I'm not testifying. I'm not going to do it. And as far as I can tell, uh, Chelsea Manning, yes, Chelsea Manning, that, that's who I'm thinking of. She's sitting in jail again, as far as, as, far as I know. So, um, we need Ulbricht out, we need Assange out, we need Snowden out, and we need Manning out, all right? Those guys, all four of them, have done more for freedom than anybody else. And again, final parting shot. If you think Ross got what he deserved, can't stand you, please go jump off the nearest cliff at your earliest convenience. Turning the counter-revolutionaries. This is going to be Obi Nwosu. He's writing for btctimes.com. Um... 
Bitcoin abounds in sound bites from otherwise smart people lazily regurgitating inaccurate anecdotes. Take tulips, for example. Bitcoin's dizzying rise to hegemony is apparently nothing more than a modern-day version of the original bubble in 17th century Holland. The most astonishing thing about the tulip mania analogy is that respected watchers of the financial world still make the comparison, referring to Bitcoin as a risky speculation, rather than a proven hedge. This claim appears more ridiculous with every major financial institution that climbs aboard the Bitcoin bandwagon. Still only a speculation? Tell that to Fidelity, BlackRock, Citibank, and Mass Mutual. Preach the gospel of the bubble to Paul Tudor Jones or any of the other institutional investors who have turned their gold orange. These people didn't get wealthy by falling for get-rich-quick schemes. They forgot to mention... Uh, uh, they forgot to mention uh, MicroStrategy in there. If you want a better comparison than tulips, spool forward a century and a half to the age of revolutions beginning with steam. That's right, steam. Because that's what Bitcoin is, a technological revolution that makes everything that came before obsolete. You're not reading this because you need convincing about Bitcoin's benefits. We've all moved on from that. What's far more interesting is to look at the counter-revolutionaries, including the ones who are supposedly on our side. All the great earthquakes of history have faced a counter-revolution. Martin Luther and the Protestants had the Jesuits. The Industrial Revolution and the legendary Ned Ludd, <clears throat> and much more real, saboteurs. Lenin and his red mob fought a civil war against the whites. But the most dangerous enemies don't come from outside the revolution, but from within. Bitcoin's biggest challenge today doesn't come from the naysayers, the mockers, or the tulip-obsessed experts. It's the institutions that, have, having brought into, bought into Bitcoin, seek to apply the defunct rules of old-school capitalism to the revolution. These organizations, steeped in the culture of traditional finance, are happy to invest in Bitcoin while acting as cheerleaders for rules that stand directly contrary to Bitcoin's ethos. This includes championing the erosion of such important foundational concepts as privacy and pseudonymity. pseudonymity. Sorry. It is early this morning. Come on, guys, give me a break. I, I don't want to call these organizations fifth columnists. That's overly emotive and inaccurate. They don't wish deliberate harm on Bitcoin or the wider crypto ecosystem. Their openness to restrictions is instinctive rather than cunningly calculated. But if it's tulip buyers you're after, then look no further. <clears throat> as I say, the big institutions don't see themselves as counter-revolutionaries. And we should not see them as the enemy. They're not, but neither are they allies of the contributors of to the revolution. Not yet, anyway. Because the Bitcoin revolution is still in its third phase, the most dangerous one yet. <clears throat> For the first five years after its birth, people ignored Bitcoin. Then they mocked it. Since the price began its sustained climb in late 2018, having refused to die, as many of the establishment have consistently predicted, we've been in the attack phase with a barrage of slings and arrows coming from the tulip fanatics and, more insidiously, the pressure to overregulate from institutions that just don't get it. This brings us to today. The bevy of big businesses climbing aboard the Bitcoin bandwagon is already accelerating, and in the next few weeks, it will go from a stream to a deluge. This is great in the short term, but it must be understood that the fight is just getting going. Luckily, Bitcoin has amassed a formidable philosophical fighting force, the likes of which would make 
Osmanandus, Osmandius, sorry, Osmandius, Genghis Khan, or Caesar quake in their boots. Fight they must, and fight they will, with words, memes, and source code. This battle of bits will be waged and won. I love Obi, man. He's a really good writer. The orange quake would be far less rewarding without the challenge of turning the counter-revolutionaries. Their error and ignorance is a necessary and welcome obstacle to overcome because it gives us the opportunity to keep making the case for Bitcoin while battling to make it ever better. Just remember, Bitcoin is a revolution, not an evolution. Everyone, including the old guard, is welcome to join, but it must and will be on Bitcoin's terms. Yes, because honey badgers don't care. Dance like nobody's watching, and we did. We grooved to the Bitcoin boogie long before it was cool. Most ignored us, some stares, stared, others pointed and laughed, and we didn't care. And then the moment of magic. Someone in the crowd ignored the mockery and started dancing along with us. <clears throat> Every revolution flows from that first follower. The one who turns the mad loner into a leader who has the guts to endorse the crazy fool everyone else is laughing at. The second follower turns these two madcaps into a crowd and then we're on the verge of something special. But it's with the addition of that crucial third follower that things start to snowball. Suddenly it's a movement. Now everyone wants to be in on the act. They know that if they join in, they won't be the odd ones out. In fact, they'll be ridiculed if they don't start dancing. As banks, funds, and other institutions rush towards Bitcoin, it's impossible to escape the conclusion that Bitcoin has won its all-important third follower. The first were ordinary people like you and me who got bitten by the bug immediately. The second wave comprised macro investors like Raoul Paul and Mike Novogratz, uh, Mass Mutual, BBVA, Standard Chartered, and all the other institutions I've chronicled on these pages are the et après nous de la deluge. Okay, I don't speak French, Obi, but whatever. These are the third followers that single the crypto cult is turning into a mass movement. It's a milestone every Bitcoiner should celebrate, but not without a rueful smile because it marks the moment Bitcoin stopped becoming our own private dance and instead became the beat for the rest of the world. Well done, Obi. Well done, sir. I got two things to say about this. First, the tulip bubble only lasted two to two and a half years, depending on you know what sources you're actually researching. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're at almost 12 years. Yeah, that that by itself doesn't work. And second, well, hell, everything's a bubble. I mean, shit. Uh, you know, I mean, you you like <clears throat> look at any of the fiat currencies that have failed. Um, look at whole civilizations. Rome was a massive bubble. I mean, my God, its land holdings alone was you know something to just stand in awe at. Where where is it now? I'm not saying the Bitcoin will go that way. I'm just saying on a long enough time scale, everything's a bubble. And Bitcoin will go the way of the dodo. At the heat death of the universe, I guess. I don't know. But like I said, all everything is a bubble and all bubbles end. It's, it's not whether or not it's a bubble. It's how long does a thing survive? How long does the thing gain momentum? How long does it take to lose that momentum? And again, on a long enough time scale, everything is a bubble. And my time scale is the heat death of the universe. So we can add another one to the list of people that are in the that French thingy, et du l s m a whatever, okay? The Riffer Investment Company 
allocates 2.5% portfolio or $15 million to Bitcoin. Now, when the news first broke yesterday, people were, and including me, I, I retweeted the coin. I think it was a Coindesk. It was either a Coindesk or Cointelegraph article. But the statement was that they had dumped $650 million into Bitcoin and everybody lost their freaking mind. No, this was incorrect. It was only 15 million as it was 2.5% of part of its allocation. Okay, so let's get into it. UK-based Ruffer Investment Company announced to shareholders today that it had allocated about 2.5% of its portfolio to Bitcoin, according to Investigate. With $620 million in assets under management, according to investment analyst Alex Kruger, the allocation represents a $15 million investment in BTC. In the announcement, Ruffer cited that this is primarily a defensive move, one made in November after reducing the company's exposure to gold. Oh, God, Peter Schiff. Ooh, somebody sold your pet rock. <clears throat> it's likely that Ruffer Investment Company has made this allocation because a small position in Bitcoin can serve as a potent insurance policy against the continuing devaluation of the world's major currencies because Bitcoin diversifies the company's much larger investments in gold and inflation-linked bonds and because Bitcoin acts as a hedge to some of the monetary and market risks that Ruffer Investment Company sees. Bitcoiners have long been speculating that Bitcoin would start being recognized as an allocation alongside gold and that entities would diversify away from gold into Bitcoin. And that was much to Peter Schiff's chagrin. In a recent episode of the Bitcoin Magazine podcast, economist Lynn Alden cited that Bitcoin is catching on with gold investors. This move by Ruffer Investment Company and many others like MicroStrategy and MassMutual further illustrate Bitcoin's advancement as a treasury asset and credibly neutral store of value. So there you go. We got another domino falling. <clears throat> so when this news hit, you know, and I was still under the impression that, that the original numbers were correct, that it was $650 million that they dumped into Bitcoin. Um, I started doing, you know, looking for other things and, you know, and this is, remember, this is coming off the heels of Mass Mutual, which is an insurance company. And somehow or another, I just started thinking, well, you know, if insurance companies get into this, you know, wholeheartedly, what's, you know, what's, what does that actually mean? Well, for some, and for some further reason, I decided to look at pensions and namely the Teamsters Pension Fund. I started asking myself the question, how much money is actually in the Teamsters pension fund? And if you're not in the United States or, or if you are in the United States and don't know what the hell the Teamsters is, the Teamsters was basically started by some mob bosses uh, back in the day uh, to protect, well, quote unquote, to protect workers against cruel and unusual working conditions essentially it ended up being a, a fund of a fund of money that mobsters could use to, you know, take loans out against and never really pay back to do whatever it is that they were going to go do. Um, but they represent like, if you're, if you drive a truck, like if you're a UPS worker, you're, you're a member of the Teamsters union. If you drive a truck for a living, like, I don't know, like a long haul trucker, you're probably part of the Teamsters union. If you pour concrete, you're probably part of the Teamsters union. It's a huge union, <clears throat> but it was brought to my attention that I should probably not look at the Teamsters. Um, it was brought to my attention that what's in all the pension funds of all the unions and holy shit, 
30, as far as we can tell, there's $32 trillion of assets floating around in pension funds in the United States alone. That's $32 trillion, not with an M, not with a B, but with a T. $32 trillion in the United States alone in pension funds, as far as I can tell. That's, that, that's a lot of dry powder. I would, I don't know, man. Sometimes I, I, you know, as I wait around for Bitcoin to do its thing, I have to remind myself a couple of things. First of all, I've only been in for a little over five years. Okay. Um, that's not a long, that's not a long time. That's a real short time horizon. If I'm getting like all antsy and want it to moon and Lambos for everybody and all that shit. Uh, nah, it's five years. Come on, dude, really? But then I think of the other side of it. Oh my God, am I even remotely prepared for what could possibly happen? Okay. And and I'm not even going to see it as an inevitability. I'm going to be, I'm going to try to walk the neutral line and, and be some kind of sensible, uh, you know, person that, that doesn't just buy into 100% hype. And I cannot wrap my head around what could possibly happen if pensions go, you know what? We're sitting on ice cubes. This ain't a good deal. And you probably aren't prepared either because when you really dig down and peel back the layers of how much money is in pensions, insurance industry, and when you start looking at industries at the industry level and you start looking at how much cash is represented by the industry, not just a single company or something like that, but whole industries, you start realizing just how much money exists in the world. And it's Wow, if this thing does what we even, if it does 1% of what we think it can do, it's going to be a face-ripping event that I don't think many of us are, are quite prepared for. Just just saying. <clears throat> okay, so on to, to you know, shit coinery. $8 million Nexus Mutual hacker lives in Singapore, says team. Chris Williams, tell us about it. Cryptobriefing.com, the founder of one of DeFi's most vital protocols, lost eight. Jesus, it was vital. Oh man, that's scary. The founder of one of DeFi's most vital protocols lost $8 million in a sophisticated attack. The perpetrator has already begun cashing out the stolen funds. The attacker, who stole more than $8 million worth of NXM or Nexium or Nexus or whatever from Hugh Carp, has cashed out a significant portion of his stash. Nexus Mutual has identified many clues pointing to a potential suspect. In a full year of flash loan attacks, hacks, and so-called rug pulls, yesterday's theft involving the Nexus Mutual founder was one of the most shocking in recent memory. The high-level attack involved setting up a fraudulent transaction to imitate the popular browser extension MetaMask. It resulted in CARP losing 370,000 NXM, the native token of his cover protocol Nexus Mutual. The transaction can be viewed on Etherscan. The assailant has since begun moving the funds into other cryptocurrencies because Nexium's a pile of shit and he knows it. First, they exchanged a portion of them into ETH, followed by RenBTC. That seems to be a, a very popular pipeline, honestly, going to Ethereum and then to Ren. There's now over 137 BTC sitting in two addresses suspected to belong to the hacker. The BTC supply is worth $2.6 million at the time of writing. Etherscan has a trail of many of their footprints. There's still almost 200,000 wrapped NXM, for instance, now worth $3.3 million sitting in the wallet. How the hell could it be? How the hell can it still be worth this? I mean, why didn't you automatically sell out of your bag? 
I, I would have I would have gotten the fuck out quick had this shit happened, but you know what? I don't have to worry about it because this is why Bitcoin Carp offered the attacker a $300,000 bounty for the fund safe return yesterday and has since alluded to escalating the case if the situation doesn't change. And Hugh Carp's tweet here, attacker, the mempool is a dark forest, but the IPs on the internet are quite transparent. I'm still happy to honor the bounty if you return the funds, less the bounty, within the next 12 hours, no questions asked. Oh my. Potential clues are unearthed. Though the Nexus Mutual Protocol uh, was unaffected by the incident, the team has been busy investigating. On Twitter, a team member confirmed that the attacker was a member of Nexus Mutual. The protocol requires users to complete a KYC process before they sign up. The team says that they completed the process before switching their membership on December the 3rd. Nexus Mutual has since identified some possible addresses linked to the hacker. If correct, it appears the hacker may have made several clumsy clumsy slip-ups that have helped expose him. There has also been some suspicious activity in the official Nexus Mutual Telegram group involving someone who began asking questions about the hack and blocked Nexus Mutual as a contact when the team reached out to them privately. Additionally, one of the addresses Nexus Mutual has unearthed has recently interacted with the one that stole CARP's NXM. The team says it belongs to someone who completed the KYC process and lives in Singapore. They've even located an IP address. With the attacker still at large, the investigation is ongoing. Uh, So he's threatening to, to dox the guy's IP address. I mean, good luck, dude. With that much money, I'm gone. <laughs> I mean, if I successfully complete and, and get my shit into BTC, I'm out of Singapore and you'll never find me. Uh, these guys, you know, Hugh, I'm sorry for your loss. This is why Bitcoin fund managers head for Bitcoin as US dollar weekends, says Matt Husey for Decrypt.co. This was written sometime this morning. It was quiet day for crypto traders yesterday. The global market cap inched up 0.64% to $571 billion, thanks to marginal gains in Bitcoin. Uh, XRP continued its violent swings up and down, this time losing 7% in the last 24 hours. Uh, this created an artificial boom in the currency that pushed prices from 22 cents to a buck. Since then, XRP's value has halved again and now sits at 50 cents. But while all that's going on, a survey of asset managers revealed that Bitcoin is becoming one of their favorite investment options. According to a Bank of America fund manager survey, when asked the question, quote, what do you think is currently the most crowded trade? In quote, 217 fund managers put Bitcoin in third place behind long tech and short the U.S. dollar. The winner, long tech, is a reference to going long on tech stocks like Facebook, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google, I suppose Tesla too, whereas short U.S. dollar means predicting that the value of the U.S. dollar would go down. As we reported yesterday, the greenback has been weakening this year. It's lost 10% against a basket of currencies since March. Whereas tech stocks have become the new safe haven for investors trying to ride out 2020's market losses. That puts Bitcoin in good company, and the sentiment has been echoed by strategists at J.P. Morgan Chase. After Massachusetts Mutual Life Insurance bought $100 million worth of Bitcoin, 
Some believe this opens the door for other pension funds and insurance companies to jump on the Bitcoin bandwagon. Like I said, guys, it could be a face ripper beyond all reckoning of the term. The last time we saw such praise from Wall Street was all the way back in 2017, and we all know what happened shortly after that. If you believe the old adage, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme, a correction could be in the cards. If you don't, Bitcoin could be about to go places it hasn't been before. Traders in the United States are, are optimistic lawmakers will pass a stimulus package after a fresh round of talks between Democrats and Republicans. Quote, the odds of a fiscal deal before the year's end have been improving. Uh, at this point, we think it's slightly more likely than not that Congress will pass this week a package similar to the recent $748 billion bipartisan proposal, which would be close to our standing assumption of a $700 billion package, said Goldman Sachs economist on Tuesday. Well, that's been reflected in yesterday's market performance. The S&P 500 turned the tide on its four-session losing streak, while the Nasdaq Composite and Russell 2000 ended today's or Tuesday's session at record closing highs. While the long-term outlook is very bullish, there are still concerns that COVID could spoil the party in the short term. Mm, of course. So, yeah, short the dollar. But longing tech, I'm not sure, man. I mean, you know, when I was a kid, you know what? You know what price to earning ratios were? I mean, it was like people would like look at 8.5% price to earning ratio or eight, not percent, eight to five X, you know, like five, you know, five times, eight times, 10 times their earnings uh, or their profit. Yeah, their earnings. And look at that and go, shit, man, that's like really close to, to a shit stock. And they would go for one, you know, 1.2 X, 1.5, 2.5, th things in that nature. You know what you're looking at now? It's like 87 X earnings is, seems to be average, especially in the tech sector. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a not fan of Tesla, but I'm also, you know, you know, I'm still looking at it as, as a viable, as viable technology but if you look at their balance sheet, there's no way that company is worth what, what, what they say it's worth on paper. There's no way that they don't have the sales. They just don't. It's just math. So I'm not sure if longing tech stocks at this point is the best way to go. I mean, maybe in the short term, but at one point or another, and I, I think fairly soon, you're going to see some bottoms fall out of that shit because there's just, there's no, there's no numerical support for these valuations. And at one point or another, someone's going to pull their plug. And once that, once that plug gets pulled, you just, at that point, man, you're just circling the drain. But be that as it may, let's run the numbers. Futures and commodities from CNBC.com tells us that oil is meh. Down 0 0.08 for West Texas uh, Intermediate and down 0 0.1 for Brent North Sea, while natural gas, doing its the thing that natural gas does, decides to plummet 1.86%. And whatever, man. Gold is up, though. Uh, Peter will be happy. 0.474% to the upside means that it's going to come in at $1,864. Silver is up two and a two and three quarters. Wow. Platinum is up one and a third. Copper is up almost a half and palladium is up three quarters. 
Indices tell us that everything is fine. 0.23% to the upside for the Dow, 0.27 to the upside for S&P, 0.19 for NASDAQ futures, and 0.32 to the upside for the S&P mini. But you know what? We got real money here, 19732 bucks. The question of the day is, will today be the day for 20000 I don't know. I don't give a shit. Again, which is why Bitcoin... Uh, I got a high over at uh, Bit Asset at let's see nineteen thousand eight hundred twenty eight. It looks like I'm gonna be seeing a low at Simex at nineteen thousand seven hundred eleven dollars. Three hundred forty one thousand transactions performed in the last twenty four hours gives us fourteen thousand two hundred transactions per hour every hour on average, with two point zero eight million BTC being sent in the last twenty four hours. That's $41 billion, y'all. Uh, 86,000 uh, BTC being sent on average every hour. The average transaction value is 6.1 BTC. Median transaction value 0.034 BTC or about 670 bucks. Block times are low, nine minutes and 21 seconds. 0.47 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis, 70 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. We've had a 3% drop in hash rate. We are now at 131.6 exahashes per second. Dogecoin coming to the upside, 0.0033, and at 41,000 transactions on its network, it's smoking Bcash and Ethereum Classic. Litecoin is at 82.68 with 51,000 transactions performed on that network in the last 24 hours. I just, again, I don't get it. I mean, I I honestly like Dogecoin better than Litecoin. I mean, if I got to pick a shit coin, it's going to be the cute little Dogecoin. Clark Moody has a price of $19,872. We have 19,000 transactions awaiting to board 13 blocks to clear we have a money supply of 18,572,519.15 BTC in circulation. One BTC will buy you 10.5 ounces of gold. And we have captured 3.01% of gold's market cap. Our market capitalization is standing at $369.1 billion. We have 1,064 BTC in the Lightning Network. And that's $21.2 million of capacity spread over 7,949 nodes with 36,313 channels. Percentage of the Tor network continues to rise. 52.7% uh, of the Lightning network is now run over Tor nodes. That's 560.61 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning network. And that is being run over 2,757 nodes. That's going to do it for Vitals. Part two of the morning roundup begins with this. Why this Montana crypto miner refuses to pay a $3.7 million power bill. A Montana-based crypto miner has asked a court to dismiss a lawsuit over $3.7 million in unpaid electricity bills on the basis that it sold its assets in 2018. Samuel Haig, tells, tell us more about it, Cointelegraph.com. 
Project Spokane, a Montana-based mining firm that has been sued by tribal-owned electricity company Energy Keepers Incorporated for $3.7 million in unpaid power bills, claims the debt is not its responsibility. (laughs) On December the 14th, Project Spokane requested that a Montana federal judge nix the lawsuit, asserting that Hyperblock, LLC, the company that purchased most of the mining firm's assets in 2018, is liable for the debt. (laughs) That's great. However, Hyperblock declared bankruptcy in March following the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. Project Spokane and Hyperblock share an owner. Oh. The suit, which was filed by Energy Keepers, or EKI in May, alleges that the Project Spokane used its deal with Hyperblock LLC to conspire against paying the power provider for the electricity it consumed. The complaint notes that Hyperblock purchased Project Spokane's assets for nearly $66 million despite the firm holding just $11 million in assets and $6.6 million in liabilities, claiming that the sum paid was excessive given the state of the miners' books. Oh, well, that's just nothing new in today's world, man. Project Spokane claimed that the terms of the deal with Hyperblock explicitly shifted responsibility for its energy bill to Hyperblock. The defendants noted that EKI returned a $1 million deposit and issued a $5 million unsecured credit limit to the firm, emphasizing that EKI had determined Hyperblock was legitimate after extensive interaction with and research into the firm. Quote, EKI approved the assignment of the contracts with its eyes wide open for EKI to now allege that defendants used Hyper LLC to abuse the corporate form and perpetrate a fraud is disingenuous and patently false given that EKI was well aware of these same facts, say the defendant. Quote, simply put, there is no evidence that either PS or Walsh used the corporate cloak of Hyper LLC to defeat public convenience, justify wrong, perpetrate fraud, or defend crime, end quote. The plummeting Bitcoin price amid the Black Thursday crash back in March was cited as the reason for Hyperblock's failure to continue paying its bills, prompting EKI to cease providing electricity to Hyperblock on May the 14th. Hyperblock filed for bankruptcy on May the 15th, one day later. Ooh, that's got to hurt. Yeah, there's all kinds of shit wrong in in the mining field. It's like everything else. I mean, everything is the Wild West, right? So, you know, here you go with this one. CEO of Bitcoin mining startup Layer 1 resigns in settlement, replaced by ex-president. So, BTCK, or was it BTC King 555 Looks like, uh, looks like you, you, you did your thing again. Man, dude, don't ever get him pissed off at you. That, that dude will gut your ass like a chicken, man. I, Whatever. This is Coindesk's Zach Vol. He's writing this one sometime yesterday. The co-founder and CEO of Bitcoin mining startup Layer One Technologies, Alex Legal, has resigned as part of a settlement between the firm's founders. According, or rather, another co-founder, uh, former president Jakov Dalek, has rejoined the company as CEO and board chairman. The settlement includes the discontinuance of all legal proceedings and demands, the company said. Founded in June 2019, the young company has fought controversy and legal battles for much of 2020. Dalek's legal disputes originated when he sued Layer One after claiming he invested millions of dollars and then was forced to leave the company, as Coindesk previously reported. 
Shortly after Dalek withdrew his lawsuit in November, Legal filed a countersuit against Dalek and fellow shareholder Ivan Krilov for malicious prosecution and shareholder misconduct. Under Legal, Layer 1 has reportedly misdescribed the role of Liu Zhangfu, co-founder of Chinese Bitcoin miner manufacturer Kanan, and supposedly a core Layer 1 team member in an investor pitch deck. Per the press release, Dalek and Legal jointly stated, quote, Layer 1 has a strong foundation for future growth, including mining operations with a capacity of 100 megawatts, which the company will be expanding in proprietary containerized solutions that will continue to drive Layer 1's operations. Legal leaves the company just weeks after being named to Forbes 30 under 30 list for 2021. Oh, maximum oof, bro. Oh, that's, that's, oh, damn. You know, that's just, that's kind of horrible. Shows you the stupidity. You said it, bro. Ethereum DeFi token plunges from $1.5 million market cap to $15,000. Again, this is why Bitcoin. Jeff Benson tells us about it from Decrypt.co. He says rug pulls and exit scams in decentralized finance have become so ubiquitous that they're hard to keep up with. Moreover, they're often accompanied by assurances that this is not, in fact, part of a scam. The most recent suspected rug pull when a project team works to increase market cap, then suddenly steps away and cashes out, leaving investors holding the bags, is DistX. The token has sunk to a market cap of $15,000 after enjoying a cap of over $1.5 million just yesterday. DistX, not to be confused with District OX, billed itself as token sale platform. DistX token holders were promised not only access to tokens launched on the platform, but also if they had enough of the tokens, a 2% share from its sales. After becoming available in August, the token hit a high of 25 cents, settling into the six to eight cent range over the last month. And then the bottom dropped out over the weekend. With the price plummeting to next to nothing, the market cap, which was $1.5 million on December the 14th, went all the way to $8,670 and now sits at fifteen grand, according to data from CoinGecko. As originally reported by CryptoSlate, a project founder, Adrian Dalus, announced on Sunday, December the 13th, that after Distex's fourth token sale failed, they'd be closing down. However, Dalus added, quote, if you all care about this, know that we aren't removing liquidity, and with the remaining company funds, which is $95,000, we will be buying Distex from Uniswap and burning it to help you guys cash out at a higher amount. Whoa. Those reassurances were undercut by several transfers of over 192 Ether worth $112,000 that appear to have removed that liquidity from Uniswap, according to War on Rugs, an anti-scam group. But Jeff Kurdikis, CEO of Token Launchpad Trust Swap, which is not affiliated with Distex, said he was working with Distex to figure out a way to salvage a, a token. Wait, figure out a way to salvage value for token holders. Daluz and Distex were unavailable for comment as their social media accounts have been deleted. Comments on the Telegram group have been muted. These are not good signs. Decrypt reached out to Kirkidis to inquire about the nature of the discussions with Distex, but has not yet received a response. DeFi has suffered from a rash of rug pulls and exit scams. As the market heats up and everyday investors try to get in, it's also witnessed plenty of projects fail or slowly fizzle out. Distex holders at the moment, however, likely don't care too much about the reasons for the abrupt exit. 
They just want the token they bought to be worth north of nothing. Do I have to say it? I mean, dude, it was just yesterday we were talking about what what was it? It was something else that the oh they were that I can't remember the name of it that they were just closing down. It was another Ethereum based DeFi bullshit token, and they were just like, you know what? We're just not doing it anymore. We're gone. So, and this one is you know either same day or or you know just a few hours into the new one. It's just happening all the time. Stay away from this. Honestly, stay away. Malta's blockchain island strategy falters as banks refuse to play ball. Ooh, oh my. Who would have thunk that? Uh, Cointelegraph Samuel Haig is writing this one late last night. Malta's finance and employment minister, Clyde Caruana, has revealed that the nation's plan to become a blockchain island is floundering due to its unwillingness of local banks to work with innovative firms. Speaking to local media outlet Love in Malta, Karuna noted that few local businesses have been able to secure banking partners, asserting, quote, traditional banks have written off blockchain at its early stages. In quote, another quote, the banks must be convinced that this is something that can really happen. Unless banks are on board, it will be very difficult. Now, Really? I don't know. Bitcoin's been doing this shit for a while without banks. I mean, we, we've had our fair share of banks, you know, cutting us loose. I, I see reports all the time about somebody's, you know, bank saying, hey, you put money into Coinbase, we are no longer having a relationship with you. Uh, so what's so different about these guys? I don't, I don't know, man. <laughs> Whatever, Karuna emphasized the need to invest into building the skills needed to locally support a flourishing blockchain sector, arguing, quote, there's always the potential to be a blockchain island, but if we want to make it happen, there must be more work. Or you could work smarter. What Karuna terms retail banking skepticism affects not only blockchain, but other emerging industries, such as the island's plan to support medical cannabis In addition to the apparent banking disinterest, the minister emphasized that the lack of local skills was hindering the growth of the new industries in Malta. Quote, it's not just about whether the industries are new or old, but rather a question of skills. If investors don't find what they require, they may think twice. If we want to keep on attracting investment to Malta, we must make sure we have what it takes in terms of skills. End quote. Malta's parliament passed blockchain-friendly regulations in 2018 as part of its bid to emerge as a global hub for crypto and DLT, with the island quickly becoming home to offices of the world's then-largest crypto exchanges by volume, OKX, and Binance. However, the resignation of former Maltese Prime Minister Joseph Muscat in February 2020 precipitated revelations that the Malta Financial Services Authority had not issued a license to a single crypto firm. While Malta's new administration has publicly reaffirmed its commitment to establishing Malta as a global crypto hub, progress remains slow, although debit card providers and exchange platform Crypto.com became the first company to receive licensing from Malta's local financial regulator on November the 24th. All right, if you guys are having this much of a freaking problem, move to Wyoming. Seriously. Just pack up and bail. I mean, honestly, you're, you're probably running everything off of AWS. So you don't need to pack up servers. You got a few computers, maybe some office, you know, equipment that you can just outright sell on Malta, grab your passport, pack your bags, move to Wyoming, learn to ride a horse, make millions of dollars or whatever. I'm just saying, man, it's going to be easier there than it is in Malta. 
Quantic launches first Bitcoin rewards checking account. Kristen Carrolls is writing this one and the last one for today for BitcoinMagazine.com. According to the release, Quantic is the first FDIC-insured financial institution in the United States to go live with the Bitcoin rewards debit card. Customers can earn 1.5% in Bitcoin on eligible debit card purchases, which must occur at the point of sale. Quantic's disruptive banking system or banking platform reimagines traditional banking with adaptive lending and innovative deposit products that transcend legacy banking inequities, according to the release. Quantic's entrance into Bitcoin with its Bitcoin back rewards debit card demonstrates the early entrance of Challenger and digital banks into the offering Bitcoin services. Sorry into offering Bitcoin services. This is a pivotal time in Bitcoin's development as it signals both consumer demand for Bitcoin services as well as increased trust in the Bitcoin network. The program offers the following debit card perks. 1.5% in Bitcoin on eligible debit card purchases, a mobile app and access to over 90,000 surcharge-free ATMs, Apple Pay, Google Pay, and Samsung Pay compatibility, and Zelle peer-to-peer payments. Quote, Bitcoin is gaining massive momentum both as a digital currency and asset class and as a store of wealth. CEO and founder of Quantix, Stephen Schnall, said per the release, this is of particular importance today given that the federal government printed an additional $3 trillion in money in 2020 in response to COVID-19 and the accompanying risk of inflation and dollar devaluation. The debut of our Bitcoin rewards checking account is groundbreaking and will serve a substantial purpose. Quantic is partnering with NYDIG, a financial services firm dedicated to Bitcoin, which helped MassMutual acquire $100 billion worth of Bitcoin last week. Quantic will be extending a number, or rather a limited number of invitations to apply to its new Bitcoin rewards checking program with its initial launch, with increased availability in the coming months, according to the announcement. Only residents of Alabama, Arkansas, California, Maryland, Massachusetts, Missouri, Montana, New York, Pennsylvania, Utah, Wisconsin, and Wyoming are currently eligible to apply. Dude, really? A New Yorker can get into this and Texans can't? Oh, man, dude, that's that's kind of hardcore. Okay, well, that's going to do it for the morning roundup. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Dad Says Jokes. He says, what do you call a French guy being mauled by a lion? Jean-Claude. Jean-God Claude Van Dammit. I'm telling you, bro. All right, so it's a short show today, only 50 minutes. There's really nothing else to say. Will we break? Will we break 20K today? I don't know. We got up as high as... I'm looking at Bitfinex on Crypto Watch, and it got up uh, on this hourly candle as high as 19,894 USD. Uh, we'll have to see. It'll be interesting if it actually prints a 20,000 candle today. Otherwise, we'll have to wait till tomorrow. And, well, shit, I guess that's when I'll see you. I'll, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.